Housing and urban development doesn't build low-income housing, but it helps finance it. Since 2016, HUD's Housing Trust Fund has made grants to 263 projects for people with extremely low incomes. The Government Accountability Office found that HUD officials need to do a better job of monitoring and overseeing the use of Housing Trust Fund dollars. Here with details, GAO's Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment Team, Jill Naman. Ms. Naman, good to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be here, Tom. And glad that you have moved from an acting director to director. Well-deserved promotion there sometime since the last time we had you on. And tell us about this program. It looks like HUD takes a very small portion of the financing of these projects that are, again, serving very low-income people. What's the purpose here? What are they trying to do here in the first place? Right. That's right, Tom. So the Housing Trust Fund is really a dedicated funding source to help assist the development of rental housing, particularly for those very lowest income households. It is a small percentage of new loans that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac purchase that go into this fund. The Housing and Urban Development Department allocates this money to states, and states then award grants to developers to build these projects. And it's really needed because these housing projects, rental housing projects, can be very complex and very expensive. And developers rely on future income to help cover their mortgage payments to provide some profit. And when the tenants in the projects are lower income, the amount of income from that rent doesn't really cover their costs. So Some additional subsidy and assistance is really needed to make developing these projects more financially feasible. So it's safe to say these are not luxury housing with swimming pools on the roof and palm trees in the lobby, but something that somebody can make money off of with low rents and a little subsidies maybe from the state funds in general? Sure. Other sources of funding are private funding, other federal programs, state and local funding uh, loans. But really the units are, we have some pictures in our report, the projects include units that are some that are designated for housing trust fund units and some that are not. So they are pretty indistinguishable, the units that are, are designated from housing trust fund from others. Got it. Well, the point is you found that HUD needs to do a better job of overseeing how the money is used because HUD money, like all federal and state money, comes with strings attached, things you have to do to comply. And so what are some of the areas that HUD needs to look at better to make sure the money is being spent wisely and according to the rules? That's right. We did find some weaknesses where HUD could improve their oversight. Funding has been going through this program since 2016, but HUD has not started in-depth field monitoring at all of this program yet. So we found some areas where they plan to do it, start doing it next year, but we found some areas where they could do some things now in a more centralized way to improve their oversight. There were a few places where there were certain requirements that HUD is not looking at all yet, and some additional instruction to grantees could be helpful. In addition, we also found some areas where HUD could improve their reporting so that the information in their reports is not misinterpreted. Right. There are certain pieces of information that the grantees are supposed to enter directly into HUD's own systems, and that doesn't always happen? That's right. There are some information in their systems. The completed number of, of units for the program actually is one of, the, one of the pieces of information that we saw. And the information is pre-populated with just the housing trust fund unit. And grantees are supposed to update that information with the total number of units. As I mentioned, projects can include both housing trust fund units and not housing trust fund units. 
We're speaking with Jill Naman. She's director of the Financial Markets and Community Investment Team at the Government Accountability Office. And HUD generally agreed with the recommendations that you made? Yes, that's right. They did. They agreed with all five recommendations that we made and have actually started taking some steps to implement some of them. So we were pretty pleased with that. And your methodology was to look at a sample of these projects. Give us a sense of how big the sample was and how many dollars were involved. Sure. We looked at a sample of 12 states and 70 projects, really dug into the cost development information and written agreements and all of the documentation for all of those projects. We also looked at some of the data that was available from HUD for all the projects that have been completed with Housing Trust Fund money. All right. And I just want to ask you about, you have a pie chart showing where these projects got their funding on average. And the fund we're talking about, the Housing Trust Fund, was 9.6% of it. 40% was low-income housing tax credit. So that's, I guess, ultimately treasury money also. And then 26.5% is private, 19% state and local. So essentially, private entities put up a quarter, roughly, of the money to build these things. This is beyond maybe the scope of the report, but what does that say about the market for this type of housing. Without a lot of federal and state subsidy, it probably wouldn't get built at all. Fair to say? I think that is fair to say. Each of these projects really do require a very complex web of funding sources from many different places. And we found that the projects that were assisted by housing trust fund money, the housing trust fund portion of the project's costs was about 10%. So it really does take a lot more money from a variety of sources to get these projects completed. Yeah, so 10% covers about the floor space of the bathroom, and the rest of it comes from other sources in these apartments. And this trust fund, does HUD get back? I mean, that implies that maybe a portion of the proceeds come back to HUD to keep the fund replenished, or is it simply a pay-as-you-go fund that's appropriated? It's a pay-as-you-go. It's annually allocated from the business of the Fannie, Fannie and Freddie Mac, the loans that they purchase. So the amount that goes into the fund every year and that's allocated every year can really vary depending on the amount of business that they have. The highest amount, I think, was in 2021. It was over $700 million. Last year, it was around $350 million. So it can really fluctuate quite a bit. And just a final question, the classic 8A housing program that HUD has operated for decades, this is a separate program, correct, for very low-income people? That's correct. That is a separate program. The Housing Trust Fund program is a separate allocation that goes right to the states, and the states really determine what priorities they want to use the money for that best fits the needs in their states. If they want to focus on new construction, if they want to focus on rehabilitating existing structures, if they want to focus on providing housing for homeless or previously incarcerated people, they can set their priorities. Jill Naman is director of the Financial Markets and Community Investment Team at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. And we'll post this interview together with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, 
Join Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events. 
widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, 
always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.